Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number 16 of Real Blend, the podcast that convinced Jaden Smith to see Ready Player One six times in a row. My name is <laughs> wow. Sean O'Connell, the managing director here at Cinema Blend, and we are a live podcast uh, conducted on Cinema Blend's Facebook page. And if you are watching the feed as we speak, Hello to everybody. If you're finding us for the very first time, uh, we're live here on Facebook. If you are missing the feed, you are able to find us later on on iTunes and Spotify and all of the places where podcasts are able to be downloaded. I am not alone. I am never alone. As per usual, I'm joined for Real Blend by Fox 32 entertainment reporter Jake Hamilton out of Chicago. Jake, how are you, sir? I'm doing very well, my friend, though. I, though I feel like we should get past my intro and then get past Kevin's intro to the, to the, to the big intro. Hold on. We're getting I'm there. Sorry, we're getting I'm sorry, there. I'm sorry. Spoiler alert. I'm Kevin sorry. McCarthy comes every single week, so he gets the next one. It's Kevin McCarthy, entertainment reporter at Fox 5 in Washington, D.C. Kevin, say hello. Hey, hello. Yeah, I'm super excited because the best movie of the year so far, uh, we have someone very special on today, so I'm super excited about this. All right, so now we know how Kevin feels about Ready Player One. So <laughs> I've seen it three times, man. This week is going to be one of our best podcasts um, of all time, and we probably say that every week, but we mean it this week because we have a very special guest who will be joining us for the entire hour. Say hello to Ready Player One screenwriter and overall friend of the show, I'm assuming, Mr. Zach Penn. Zach, how are you? Woo! Uh, I'm good. I, I feel like you've given me so much to live up to. I've got to make this the best podcast ever. And it's really all ever, downhill. So. Well, you already okay. have the best screenwriting name of all time, so I think you're doing just fine. Thank you. Yeah, a lot of people think it's made up, but that's my real name. So, uh, Zach, I want to go over your credits really fast. Obviously, you are the screenwriter for Ready Player One. Um, you also worked on, I, I have it down, some of these are story by credits and some of these are actually screenwriting credits. The Incredible Hulk and X-Men Last Stand and Elektra. Um, the Avengers one, that's a story by credit. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, story by, you know, it doesn't mean that you didn't write a script. It just means that when it's arbitrated, you, you know, it's kind of this arbitrary denomination that's given depending on what percentage you do. So I have story credit on Avengers and on X-Men 2 and probably some other movies as well. And exactly. if I... I if I had my way, we would spend the next hour talking about PCU, which is one of my favorite comedies of <laughs> all time. Obviously, the most quotable comedy that that is uh, that, that that I've probably ever seen. So, Zach, you mentioned the story by thing. I was always curious about this because back in the day, I remember Quentin Tarantino wrote a script for Natural Born Killers, and then the actual uh, credits only give him a story by. And I remember like just hearing about like Oliver Stone changing it up. Is that kind of what happens? Eventually, the person gets a story by. Yeah, I mean, I lost screenplay credit on my first original screenplay, which was Last Action Hero. Um, oh, wow. I have a story credit on it, but I, me and my writing partner wrote the spec script. So it's kind of this, you know, I, I've argued for years they should just say original screenplay by and then yeah. rewritten by or something like that, which is what you would do with a book. But, uh, you know, whatever. It's it's 28 years later. I'm I'm happy with where I've ended up. So, yeah. <laughs> our podcast. <laughs> yes, this is so. it. This is what I dreamed of my whole life. I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> yeah. Well, Zach has agreed to play along for the entire show, and that means that he's going to play a few of our fun games, which includes this week um, hashtag Streep Blend. Um, in the year in in weeks past, we have picked someone who we really love, be it a filmmaker. We've delved into actors and actresses now. Last week was Hank's Blend, um, and this week we're going to do the films. Of Meryl Streep or the performances of Meryl Streep where we're going to try to figure out her best performance I can't speak to the other guys this one um, was actually impossible 
And I had to, I was down to two films. I just had to rip the Band-Aid off and go with one of them. I will try to defend them later. The guys all have their picks too. We also have an unpopular opinion, but I'm going to throw the microphone to Kevin for a second. Sean, real quick, since we have Zach on and he wrote a Steven Spielberg movie, should we just all tell him real quick what we picked for Spielberg Blend? That sounds like a great idea. Kevin, why don't you start? So this is what we've deemed to be the best Spielberg film. Not necessarily our favorite, but what we think best personifies a Spielberg okay. film. I'll let you know if you're right. <laughs> I, I don't want to put Zach on the spot, but if he if he has this, and again, the, the, the hard thing here is favored versus best. Yeah, uh, totally. and uh, I So I went with Jaws. Jake, you went with... I think I went with Ready Player One. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Suck up. I, yeah, I, also, I, I also went with Jaws. And then Sean, and I, you went with... I went with E.T. I went with E.T. Uh, that's wrong. It's, oh, uh, damn it. it's Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Interesting. Can I, can I hear is, why? Is, uh, yeah, I think it's one of the most pure cinematic uh, experiences anyone's ever made. I mean, the story is told through sound and image rather than simply dialogue. Every time you see Devil's Tower, you hear those notes, the story turns. That's such a, you know, people have written theses on it, but I just think it's the perfect combination of just his genius as a director and also a fascinating story. It's also goes in unexpected directions. I mean, I really think, uh, I do think it's his best film, but you know, he's got like 11 best films. Right. So, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's hard right. to say, but I will one say the harder ones to do. Ready player one is, is his best movie since minority report in my personal opinion, but we can get, we can debate that later on. But I think that's, uh, I, I, I don't know if you guys agree with me on that, but I think it's his best one. Since minority oh yeah. hundred percent. Has up to there. Be. And I, mean, I love I like Munich it. too, but you know. I like the post a lot too, as we know. I'm the one, I'm the man on that hill. <laughs> you know what? I'm a big fan of uh, War of the Worlds. I think yes! that might be his most underrated movie. I think the first hour and a half of War of the Worlds oh. is a perfect movie. Like it's just, you know, and I don't think the rest is bad. I just don't think it's as great as the first hour and a half. But, Zach, um, I don't think there's anything more terrifying than that, sh- that shot of him running through the street but people are being like vaporized and then that camera falls down and you watch the rest of it through that that video camera it's the sickest uh, kaminsky's how about the how about the bridge blowing up in the background or even the storm just the sequence where they go in the backyard with the storm yeah i also think the character stuff is great like well that's i I rewatched i rewatched that recently and was blown away by dakota so good mesmerized by how incredible she is at such a young age and what i found relatable oh oh, i'm sorry go ahead no you go you go first i was gonna say what i found relatable about that movie is that so many destruction films like something like an independence day are all about these big national massive monuments being being blown up when in actuality most if that were to happen most of us wouldn't see that what we would see is maybe something over the hill or maybe it would pop up like in our street in the suburbs or something most of us would not get to see the the white house being blown up so that's why i always liked war of the worlds is because to me it was viewed from the perspective of what most of us would see if there really was an alien invasion well, Stephen always says that he's he's most interested in stories about normal people in extraordinary situations, which yeah. all the movies that we're mentioning, pretty much those are the main characters of all of them. Um, you know, I, I think that it's also Tom Cruise's performance in that movie. He's is completely unafraid to be unlikable in that movie. I mean, he's so he's such a dick to his kids. I can yeah. say that, right? Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. And that, that catch that he has with his son in the backyard where they are throwing each other's... I, I just think it's a great movie, but... I agree. You know, 
we could go down the Spielberg rabbit hole and, <laughs> and never stop. Um, well, so. we're going to get to Spielberg in a little bit because we're going to talk Ready Player One spoilers. When we get to that segment, uh, the reason why we have Zach on weeks after the film has been out. And actually today it crossed 100 million uh, domestically. So congratulations on that, sir. And Thank 400 you. million yeah. worldwide. 400 million yes. worldwide. is doing very well. Thank so. you. Mostly due to Kevin. Mostly <laughs> and Kevin and Jaden Smith account for... Uh, 20% of the box office. I think I tweeted about that movie at least 345 times. It's, 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 been, it's been a little bit... Uh, people probably think of something wrong with me. But, well, uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, we thought we, that long before Ready Player One came out. Uh, we tend to begin the podcast with news, and we're going to keep it to one item so that we can get into all the other fun stuff that we want to do with Zach. And uh, it's only because a Han Solo trailer dropped. Um, Zach, I don't know if you had a chance to see it yet. It, I've it, seen it. Okay, great. Um, I think I can speak... I know for Jake... It's one that made him even more excited for a film that he was already excited for. Jake, talk about your reaction to it. Why are you super geeked out about this one now? And what did you see in the second one that really had you revved up? I mean, what I really loved about this one is to me, it, it sort of personified what how we've always described Star Wars, which I feel we've gotten a little bit away from. I mean, that I mean, so much of, of what Lucas took from uh, was, the, you know, the, those early Western films and took that and sort of made it into sort of a the space opera that we all know and love. And to me, the solo trailer implies that they're going back to sort of that Western feel. It kind of has this old school heist, sort of like a dirty dozen, like a wild bunch kind of feel to it. And yeah, maybe it's going to answer questions and show us things that we didn't necessarily ask for, but I'm totally game. I, I'm sorry, I want to see the Kessel run. I want to see, you know, the I want to see Lando lose uh, that 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 poker game and and you know lose the Millennium Falcon. I'm super psyched to see all that stuff. So uh, and people that don't want to see it or, or don't care, don't fine, ignore it. But to me, the the fact that it's this small scale western featuring some of our favorite characters in the Star Wars canon uh, just really super psychs me. And Ron Howard is a great director. I don't understand why you know why people are sleeping on the fact that Ron Howard well, directed this. But no, it's not. I don't think that it's Ron Howard per se. It's that they were. Fired up for a Lord and Miller Star yes, Wars movie, and then that's that got taken away from us. Now I feel like we're reaching the plateau where we're more comfortable with the fact that it's coming and it's it's Ron Howard, and we're getting a better look at at Alden in the role, and obviously that supporting cast. I mean, if you tell me that it has Woody Harrelson, Tandy Newton, Do Donald Glover doing Lando, like all of those reasons, I walked away from that trailer thinking that Han still kind of looks like the least interesting part of the Han Solo yes. movie. Yes. But but I think that's okay because everything else looks so interesting. But I mean, but I, it's was it Luke? That, the, was, but wasn't Luke always sort of the least interesting person of Star Wars for, for you know what? For a it's while? often it's often the main character that's the least interesting character. It's kind of a it's a thing that people forget. You know, as a screenwriter, it's something you always have to remember that usually the main character is the least interesting person because they have to be the audience surrogate. Yep. So you know. Uh, you could you could just go on and on about how many movies where the main character is the least interesting. I mean, part of the reason why Han Solo is so good in the Star Wars movies is because he's not the main character. Right. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, he can come in and out when he wants. So, uh, you know, that's... The good thing is you've got Lando, you've got Chewie, you've got all these other characters. Um, I mean, to me, if you just said Ron Howard made a movie set in space about like smugglers. Okay. I want to go see that. That right. sounds awesome. Right. Much less set in the star Wars universe. So, uh, yeah. to me, it kind of seems like the movie 
I thought Rogue One was going to be a little bit more of a Dirty Dozen movie than it, it, it was a little bit, but not really, you mm -hmm. know. And this one looks a little bit more like a crime, you know, it's a crime movie yeah. in, in outer space. So. Well, what Zach just said about the lead character and kind of the idea of it not being the most interesting character. I mean, I think a great example of that earlier this year was Black Panther. Uh, because yeah. like, when you watch Black Panther, the most interesting characters in those movies, to me, was Michael B. Jordan's villain character because it was so layered and there was an interesting um, sympathy to this guy who was a, a murderer. Uh, then you have the, you know, Denai Guerrero's character and Lupita's character. To me, uh, as Zach was saying, Black Panther was kind of the character that just, he was the, he kept everything together. Mm -hmm. um, the Han Solo trailer, I, I'm, I'm excited about it, but as Sean said, I wanted to see Phil Lord and Chris Miller's movie. Uh, only because I think those guys are very unique. They're very interesting. I was interested to see their take on a Star Wars story. Uh, I love Ron Howard. I just I'm worried about the movie being a little too safe in regards to like the Disney like Disney element of kind of what the Star Wars universe is. I mean, again, which is strange to say because Ryan Johnson's movie was so outside the box uh, compared to other Star Wars movies. So I don't know. I, I'm still not sold on Aaron Reich. I'm actually more interested in Lando. Uh, I'm very excited about Donald Glover um, as Lando. I just, I don't know. I, I'm I'm excited, but I'm not like over the moon. Zach, what are your By thoughts way, about it going to Cannes? Is it a strange place to premiere a film like that? Uh, you know, the publicity, look, uh, we premiered at South by Southwest, not because Ready Player One is a festival movie, because it definitely isn't. Um, I, You know, I, it, it's all just about uh, publicity and marketing. Mm -hmm. Um it's not, I don't think it's a can movie. Like, I don't think we're going to watch it and say, my God, that was, uh, that was like a Lars von Trier film. Um, but remember, yeah, Attack but, of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith also premiered there. So it's like, yeah, it's, just one of the, it's, a, it's a publicity thing. Like, it's, it kind of gets it on the map. I never realized yeah. how much I wanted a Lars von Trier Star Lars Wars. Yeah. Star Wars. <laughs> yes. yeah. Can you imagine? By the like, way, it would be amazing. Dude, I like, almost wore Kali. my... I almost wore my Von Trier Van Halen logo. Have you guys seen those? Yeah, oh, Cinnamental awesome. Bash. Oh my God. You got to check it out. Dude, they have if, like uh, Foss Binder and the Metallica logo. They're really funny. What if the so, end of Melancholia was actually us diving into the Star Wars universe as that planet comes towards the Earth? That would have been awesome. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So Unexpected. That, that movie is coming in May. Um, obviously, we have uh, Avengers Infinity War. Uh, coming before that and taking all the oxygen out of the room and in between that Deadpool is so it just means that May is becoming um, a behemoth for for summer so uh, obviously we have a lot to look forward to I want to jump ahead to unpopular opinions this is a segment that we do that was born of our text chain um, Zach you might not know this but we have a text chain that we uh, do in between <laughs> shows uh, where we bounce ideas off of each other and as an example I left the text chain for 10 minutes this morning to drive my kid to school which was a mistake because i came back and had 70 plus uh text messages waiting as we sort of swapped ideas but one of those times every time we do a text chain like this someone will drop an unpopular opinion last uh, week it was me taking a swipe at the lord of the rings trilogy um as calling it overrated i got shouted down by a lot of people um kevin brought this one up a couple of weeks ago and it just felt like a perfect fit with you being on here he's and i'll let him say it kevin you say it because um when you said it I actually couldn't believe it, but then I really couldn't believe that I that I agreed with you. Wait, you agree with him? Oh, yeah, of course he does, because I'm right. Because I'm right. No, no, no. But here's the thing. Uh, a couple of things to note. So Zach kind of gives an idea of how crazy these conversations can get. Last week, Sean claimed that Forrest Gump is one of the worst movies of all time. Uh, he hates Forrest Gump, and we got into a whole like discussion. 
he, he hates it. So we, we have a pretty extreme opinions. Um, but all right, so my, my opinion on this, I think the Back to the Future trilogy is better than Star Wars original trilogy. Okay. Um, because it's more consistent? Is that your feeling? Yeah. Or what, what's your argument? Well, my argument is that, first of all, I think the universe is more interesting. I particularly care more about the characters in Back to the Future. I, I, I love the concept of the story more than Star Wars. And listen, I love Star Wars. But if I'm, and I guess it gets, it gets that age old opinion of if you're home on a Saturday, which one are you going to throw on? Uh, and like, to me, back to the future one, two, and three, I love three and I know three's hated on. Um, but I think three is awesome. I love the whole character arc of of doc and kind of the whole, the love interest in the train. I know people hate that, but I, I love it. Um, but I think to me, it's just a more interesting universe. I think the trilogy is more consistent, as you said. I, I even think Indiana Jones is a better trilogy than Star Wars, um, the original one. And Don't sidebar. I, Stay on track. Well, here, here's my Don't point. Don't sidebar. You're going to derail here's, this whole thing. Here's my point. Empire is a masterpiece. Uh, the first episode four is a gr- good film. But I don't think it's great. And Jedi, I don't like the ending. Um, so I think to me, the consistency of all three Back to the Futures is a better overall. Define story. the ending of Jedi. I don't, you don't like, like it from what point. No, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't like that entire. Dude, I don't well, like that's it. not the, the, the The cutting between the three battles in Return of the Jedi that like, that like is one of the, like the best massive battle scenes in the history of cinema. It, on it's space, a, on land, and then the personal battle between Luke and Darth. Are you kidding me? I it's don't like a love, space Dunkirk. I don't love her. So, hey, Dunkirk's yeah, Dunkirk. better than Return of the Jedi. <laughs> space Dunkirk. I, I just, I mean, I'm interested to hear Zach's opinion. I am um, too. And, and again, I want to make sure I'm making it clear. I love Star Wars, and I think the trilogy yeah, no, is incredible. I just think right. Back to the Future is a better trilogy, personally. Um, yeah, I think you're wrong. Um, <laughs> I think you're wrong. That's fine. Uh, I do think... I do think that the only argument you can make is that the Back to the Future trilogy is more consistent. You know, that there's definitely that the, you know, Return of the Jedi compared to Empire. There's like, I think, a big drop off there. However, I just think in terms of I think Back to the Future, the first script is probably one of the best scripts ever written um, and one of the most complex scripts ever written. And we actually talked about it a lot while making Ready Player One just about an analog for something that's so tricky in terms of cutting back and forth. But that said, you know, look, I grew up, I waited online to see Star Wars at the Ziegfeld when I was nine years old. So, uh, you know, to me, I think you have to understand when Star Wars came out, there was nothing like Star Wars. There's nothing like it. It was just, uh, I mean, granted, you know, Back to the Future was unique, but it wasn't the same way that Star Wars just change your perception of what a movie could be. Uh, and then Empire Strikes Back actually being a better movie yeah. was insane. Um, and I think I think that's a hard argument to make. Um, I think there's some maybe some other trilogies probably where you'd have, um, you know, where you'd have a more consistent argument. I mean, you know, Don't Alien me. and Terminator, other than the third movies, yeah. the first two, <laughs> Alien to Aliens yes. is is one of the best one-two punches ever right. because they're two completely different movies and they're both amazing. Right. Um, and Terminator 1 and Terminator 2 are equally, you know, and then Terminator 3 I actually don't think is as bad as people say, but I, but yeah. I think that's... But don't you put I a think lot it's of a problem st- the, stock in, in yeah. the fact that the Back to the Future... See, now let me just say that when Kevin said it... You as, agree with me, Sean. Come on, don't, as don't, don't back as down As crazy it here. sounds, when I stepped back to process that I thought, I, I agree with him... In that sense that 
I find the story to just be more accessible. I, I can yeah. plug into the Back to the Future story a little bit easier than that kind of Star Wars movie. But I wonder if it's the consistency of having Zemeckis tell all three of them right. um, that works a little bit better for me. But I mean, I, I don't know if Zach agrees with this. I, and, 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 and this might be a bold statement. You can kill me if you want. I don't think George Lucas is a great director. I think he's a he's a, he's a good he's a he he comes up with good ideas. He's great at stories. And the, what Zach just said is interesting to me because about the idea of being young, watching that film, and it sure. being that groundbreaking. Uh, because because I was born in '84, I think for me that the just the Back to the Future was that was my that was mine. Like that, that, to me, that was what was groundbreaking. But I totally get that. And you listen, you can go back in the history of cinema and say Citizen Kane did this or Hitchcock did this and it changed cinema. I just, I don't know. For me, when I look at the different trilogies, it's just, it's just to me, it is the most consistent. I think consistent is the right word. Because uh, I think Empire is a masterpiece, but the other two aren't and at the level of Empire. Well, listen, I think obviously you've got the same creative team working on all three movies so it's fair to say, of course, it's more consistent. I mean, my memory, it's been a while since I saw three. My memory was being tired of the concept by the time we got to the third one. That's fair. Um, where, whereas in Star Wars, the concept is always changing. I mean, it's, it's the same characters throughout the trilogy, but they're each very different types of movies. But, uh, but I do think, I mean, look, I think it's a reasonable, it's not a crazy argument. It's not like... Uh, you know, saying Fast and the Furious is a better <laughs> franchise than Star Wars. Um, right. And, you know, it is one of those unusual things where a director was involved in the writing and directing of all three movies. So, And you, you, you know. mentioned Alien. I, and people kill me for this too, I, I don't hate Fincher's third one. I, do, I, mean, I don't hate it either. It's just not as good. The other I two agree. are like perfect movies. Agreed. They're literally, those are the templates. Whenever someone's working on a movie... Yeah. You know, because they're very different. One of them is a group of people trapped in an enclosed space with a monster among them, and it's kind of a paranoid thriller. And the other one is more of an action movie. Right. It's a platoon of people traveling well, to a planet. They're very different structures. Do you know what we love about so, that? That's what we, we talk about the Mission Impossible franchise on this podcast a lot, and it's taking that universe and just handing it to a different filmmaker each time. And right. it's kind of like taking Alien right. and giving it from Ridley to James Cameron. Is That's what you get. Wait, right. so we, we got to let Jake, because Jake's obviously, I, I think Jake's probably the biggest Star Wars fan I know, personally. So I, I, I'd love to hear just Jake's opinion just in general. I mean, because I, I think... Yeah, are we way off, Jake? You're, you're, I mean, we're way off in his mind. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, obviously, like you guys know, I'm very biased biased towards Star Wars, but by, by the reason I think Star Wars is a better series than Back to the Future is that, to me, the original trilogy of Star Wars is one big, giant story just told in three different chunks, as opposed to, for me, the Back to the Future films as much, and granted, I love oh, the first one, but to me... That is one big story. To Back me, it feels one like story. one story and two sequels. Oh, it feels like yeah. one story, and then it feels no, like, let's do it again. Wait, wait, but, he's, but the second one feels like, let's do it again, but go the other way. Yeah. And the third one uh, feels like, let's do it again, and go back way far the other way. Right. It's the right. same bit, but just right. we're moving in different directions. I mean, Variations on a theme yeah. rather than one continuous story. Um, I see that. By the way, I really disagree with you. As much as Raiders of the Lost Ark, one of the best movies ever made, but I don't see how you could compare the Indiana Jones trilogy, because I just feel like in both that and in Back to the Future, you are doing variations on a theme. It's like the same character, the same kind of movie, and just with like a different, you know, with different details. Whereas Star Wars is more like, you know, 
uh, it is. It's one continuous yeah. epic. But but I'm also a crusade guy over Raiders, which is another crazy thing that I say all the time. That's, that's crazy. That's crazy. That's crazy. Yeah. I love, right. I love that's crazy. Sean Connery. Thank you for Phoenix. saying that. Oh, I, that's I crazy. love Crusade. I love. But we should. <laughs> should we tell him the other one that, that I? Yeah, we that, we can't. Talk I don't about know that. if we can tell him the other one. Should we? No, no we don't tell him the other one. one. He's, no, tell, don't me. tell me. Don't tell me. I want to hear it. He likes Die Hard with a Vengeance more than the first Die Hard movie. I do. No, thank you. No. That's right. I, like Die Hard. <laughs> I love Die Hard. Three, can we man. can we just use Zach from now on? Like if we have like a debate, just call him and have him weigh yeah. in when like either that's that's correct or that's wrong, and then that settles it, and we can't say we can't talk about it anymore. Yeah. Uh, let me tell you. Let me give you my reason for that. Please, is when you introduce a great character, right? The first time you you meet John McClane and see what that character is about is inherently going to be the best version of it. Yes. That. After that, it's how can we contrive to get John McClane back into the same situation. And and I think that's one of the problems, one of the things that makes it hard to do Indiana Jones movies. It was smart to do a prequel, and then it was smart to introduce his dad. But to a certain extent, it's not a real universe. Like, Star Wars is a universe. The Matrix is a universe yes. where, you know, you don't have to have the same characters every time. I just think with Die Hard, you know, it depends what order you see them in. But if you saw Die Hard first, that was the one where... It was just original and different, and you didn't know what John McClane was capable of. Yeah, and this, By the third one, you're like, okay, he's going to do what he always does. And also, he don't forget, the third, the third one wasn't even written as a Die Hard movie. It was written as a, as a movie called Simon Says, and then they said, well, it we It was could almost a Lethal into... Weapon one. It was almost oh, was a Lethal it? Weapon movie. Yeah. Yeah. Wasn't For the first long. Commando yeah. like a Die Hard movie? Well, but, but the, uh, our, there was some connection between Commando so. and Die Hard. Yeah. Well, I don't remember the... But, well, Steven D'Souza wrote both of them. Right. But, uh, but I will say this, and Zach makes a good point. I saw Die Hard 3 first because I was 11 years old. Well, that's well, interesting. I, but I was 11. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it all comes down to where you were in your life as well. It, it, it is hard to, to look at a movie that you have a connection to differently. Uh, and like, I think Die Hard 3, I, I was 11 years old. I saw it at AMC Patrick Henry. My dad took me to see it after I mowed the lawn that day. I'll never forget it. And, and it, it just blew, it blew my mind, that opening with the Summer in the City song and the explosion and just the whole Central Park chase with Sam Jackson. I don't know. I, it well, is, th- I guess this it's is officially getting out of control because Sorry. now people on Facebook... <laughs> Paul Green is telling us on Facebook that he agrees with you that Vengeance is the best in the series. Oh, we, have the best to, in the series. we have to move on. That's actually Kevin on Facebook posing as someone else. We have the screenwriter <laughs> of Ready Player One with us. And as we have promised, we are going to dive into spoilers for your film. Uh, Zach, I hope you don't mind that we're going to pepper you with questions that you can talk freely about it. That's okay. You got clearance to talk yeah. as openly as you want to. Yeah, sure. Excellent. I think yes, so. Yes, great. If someone puts a bullet in my head while we're talking, <laughs> yeah. then no. Spielberg's going to step out behind that couch and choke Zach out. Yeah. Right so a warning to yeah. anyone who is watching live, punch out now. Um, if you have downloaded us after the fact, go see Ready Player One and then come back and fast forward right to this point. But Jake, you're kicking us off. What question do you have for Zach? Yeah, well, I wanted to talk about um, the casting of Mark Rylance as Halliday. And specifically, there were a lot of rumors that Steven Spielberg was attempting to pull Gene Wilder out of retirement and and did you have any particular actor in mind when you guys were crafting the screenplay and how do you think the movie might have been different if you if Spielberg had been successful in pulling Gene Wilder out of retirement well first of all it's not true that he was trying to get Gene Wilder out of oh interesting I think that he uh, I think that was just a rumor that went around but wasn't actually the case um I think you know Mark and Steven had just worked together on two movies and he's he's literally I mean he's considered the best stage actor in the yeah. world he's certainly one of the most 
physically capable actors in the world. I mean, in terms of his control of himself, uh, you know, him and Daniel Day-Lewis and a couple of other people are, are the top of the charts. I think there's probably some consideration of other people who are more household names, but it didn't, you know, it didn't surprise me for a second that it ended up being Mark Rylance. Like, it, here's the thing. With Mark Rylance, you're not, you're not casting someone who's like James Halliday. You're casting someone who can become whatever, he, you know, if you had to do a movie about, like, you know, a snail, you could cast Daniel Day-Lewis and he'd live like a snail for a year <laughs> and make a convincing snail. And Mark is kind of like that. You know, he, he's like a snail. Um, he can, he could do anything. So, it was a pretty unsurprising call from the inside because, you know, he had just been nominated for an Oscar, you know, it just, it seemed like a no brainer. Um, and also, cause remember whoever plays holiday is really playing three different parts, yep. not just two, um, which is something people forget. It's not just holiday and it's, or an anorak. He's also playing, you know, a version of holiday that exists inside the Oasis. You know, which is somewhat different than the book. Oh, we're going to get to that. So you've got to play. Yeah, that. and that's going to that's yeah. going to lead into Sean's question. But I, I want to say one thing about Mark Rylance. I mean, the guy, uh, it, 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 the performance in Ready Player One, first of all, is absolutely perfect. I mean, the, the ending brings tears to your eyes. He just he plays it with such an interesting subtlety, but every word he says is important. He never wastes words. Um, it, it's a beautiful performance. But Sean, I, 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 we'll get to your question now. Wait, this ho- is, I'm going to oh. save my holiday one for a little bit later because oh. I want to ask this one first. Yeah. All right. All right. Hey. All right. Yeah. No, we should. We'll build. We have time. show notes, Kevin. We follow them for a reason. That's true. <laughs> no, and also I know what you're going to ask, and it's a big question. Yeah. Well, so in a PG-13 movie, you get one f bomb, and this one was right. delicious. Um, it was so perfectly planned. It plays so well in a crowd. How do you get to the point where you discuss when you're going to use it? Um, uh, yeah, well, just talk about that. Talk about the process of picking when you're going to drop your f bomb well, that- and how you're going to how you use this one in Ready Play One. You know, the truth is that we didn't plan, we didn't sit around saying, when are we going to use our F-bomb? Um, what happened was Stephen wanted to do that line. You know, he just, he liked, I, I don't even think it was me. I think he might have said, let's have him say it's f and uh And awesome. And I was like, awesome. Can we get away with it? Great. Uh, so it really wasn't, you know, there was a lot of, you know, Stephen's talked about this. There was a lot of, us, like both the actors improvising, but also Stephen and I sitting there saying, you know, what if we did this? Because one of the things that's cool about doing a movie in motion capture is you're watching a battle scene, like it's unfolding, but it's the performers are just standing in front of you in these crazy suits. Yeah. So normally, if you're shooting a real battle scene, you couldn't be like, oh, I have a better line, let's reset, you know, let's reset, you know, the entire uh, field in the Battle of the Bastards, you know, because I I have a good line for Jon Snow. But you can in motion capture. So when you're doing stuff like that, you can throw in a line and say, oh, let's just try it that way, you know. So I think that's really, it just came from that. And there weren't, I don't think there were any other F-bombs in the script. So there you have it. Although we did, we did have to cut one of my favorite lines, um, which is, uh, you know, when Wade says, uh, what does he say when he says to H, it's like, um, you know, thanks for the cock block. I, I forget what it is in, in the movie now. It's after H, like, you know, steps in between him and Artemis. He has a line like, um, I can't even remember what it was exactly, but he was like, um, you know, thanks for stepping on my line or whatever. But it used to be, 
thanks, Captain Cock. That's what it was. Thanks, Captain Cockblock. <laughs> and they changed it to thanks, you know, Captain Obvious or something. I don't remember what right, it is. Right. But I would have. I wanted that cockblock. They said no. Could, wait, could could that word get past an R rating? Cockblock. I don't think, I don't think so. so either. Right? And it's it's interesting. It's so the MPA is so fascinating. We should get into that. So on a show one time because I think you can you can say two now right because you I think you can get two f words in there without the word mother before it I think and uh, you know, all I know is if you've read the South Park memo <laughs> about bigger longer and uncut have you ever seen no. their, their letter to the MPAA trust everyone watching find Trey and Matt's letter to the MPAA over the cuts they made to South Park the movie it's hilarious like they couldn't show a penis so they changed it to a severed penis i mean it's crazy stuff and it actually but so you never know what they're gonna say i remember hearing a story like when they made team america that they actually made the sex scene more graphic to give to the mpa so that they could they could get the version that they actually wanted in the movie is that true i remember that's very common by the way almost every filmmaker does that almost every filmmaker gives a cut that is more harsh or has more bad language the MPA so they can make it. It's so arbitrary. You heard the story about Hitchcock common. with uh, the shower scene in Psycho that they yeah. sent it back to him like, you have got to cut this up. And he held on to it, I think, for like three or four weeks, did nothing, sent it back <laughs> and was like, you guys will totally know the difference. And apparently they were all like, oh yeah, oh yeah, we can, t- oh, yeah, we can see the right. difference. You're right, you're right, you're totally right. <laughs> you know, all right, you Kevin, know. you have a scene you want to ask about. Yeah, well, Zach, I think the big question that everyone wanted to ask you at the junket was in reference to The Shining, and obviously nobody could talk about that because Spielberg was, you know, I mean, rightfully so, no one wanted that to be ruined. It's one of the greatest, probably one of the greatest surprises I've had in a movie in 10 years. I can't remember being that shocked by something. Um, It was so cool. I guess, uh, obviously, in the book, there's Blade Runner, there's War Games, there's different things that happen within the, uh, the book. So I guess the question is, did your original draft have The Shining? How did that come about? I know that obviously Spielberg and Kubrick had a relationship with AI. Um, can you just talk about maybe just what, what that was about, and you know, was that the initial choice? Well, first of all, uh, you know, early on, I made the choice, and and Ernie brings this up a lot that you know he was influenced by Last Action Hero, which was my first script, which was about a kid getting sucked into a movie, and I always felt like instead of doing flick sync, which is fun as an idea in the book, we have to go into the movie and have an adventure in the movie. It's got to be an exciting scene within the movie. Like why we can't just have someone repeat all the lines like it is in the book. So early on, I had written Blade Runner in, but not, you know, where you have to kind of evade Rutger. How Actually, I think Harrison Ford start, Deckard starts shooting at you and you realize you're a replicant and then you go take the Voight Kampf test and you have to do a bunch of That's other awesome. stuff. Uh, yeah, it was a good scene, but it there were actually a couple of problems with it that aren't worth going into because it was it'll never be seen anyway, but the Blade Runner rights were really difficult and I think Steven wasn't 100% sure that that's what he wanted to do anyway and Ernie and I, that was one of the things that we collaborated on most closely. Uh, you know, we started coming up with lists of possible movies, and I think he was even on set, um, although we decided before we got to set. But when we sent him the list and we put The Shining on there, we just thought, just like we thought Stephen will never direct this movie, we just <laughs> thought he's never going to agree mm. to redo a Stanley Kubrick yeah. movie. I mean, of course, he worships him. And to our surprise, he said yes. I mean, he just, with no real explanation other than he said, I think that'll be amazing. Let's do it. And then Ernie and I spent a lot of time figuring out why. 
Like, why is it The Shining? You know, we then, once he decided on The Shining, it was a real process to figure out, okay, so what, what's actually important about The Shining to the characters and to the scene and, you know, to H and, you know, the whole idea that H doesn't like scary movies, uh, you know, was kind of a big breakthrough in terms of getting that scene to work. Because you can imagine without that, what would this be? Are the voices been? of the twins the, the real voice from the movie? Like, is that the voice from the movie? No? Uh, the, well, those aren't the real twins. Mm. I, I think I can give away. Um, because they do things that the twins don't do. Oh, variety, interesting. So God, I, I didn't even think about that. I don't think that's a spoiler. Okay. I mean, here's what... I know Stephen doesn't want us to tell how the sausage yeah. is made when it comes to that sequence. But I can tell you it was unbelievably complex uh, there were days where, you know, you were seeing actors in motion capture suits walking on a set that was a reproduction of the show. Oh, wow. I mean, it was, ah. it was very confusing as to what was going That's on. Amazing. So, uh, and, and ILM did some incredible stuff to it. I mean, if you, if you look at it closely, you'll notice that there's film grain over, even over our characters. They, you know, they, they kind of blended the characters into the film grain of the movie. Um, so it, there's so much. I mean, literally, someone's going to write a book about the making of that sequence. It's really. Is it true? Were, the, were, were Kubrick's family with, were they on set during some of that? I remember hearing somewhere that they were on set, and you you mentioned the film grain, which is which is we can get into that later on. But it's the coolest concept ever was shooting 35 in the real world and digital in the Oasis thing. That that jet jump was so cool how they pulled that off. But yeah, can you talk about Kubrick's family on set? Were they there? Uh, yeah, I mean. Not his entire. Well, I think it was his wife. I don't remember if his wife and one of his children, so but um, cool. you know, I know I met his wife. Um, but yeah, and Stephen's really good friends yeah. with them. Um, and uh, he, I think they would have come set anyway, honestly. But he had them come set for that day. And and I have to say, I think, I mean, I think one of the things that people miss about that sequence, because you know, it's so much fun. Uh, it's so much fun that it's, you know, you, it, it gets a little bit, you forget what's going on. But part of it is Stephen is doing something incredibly bold yeah. there. I mean, he's taking this classic movie and saying, I know this seems like sacrilege, but I'm going to completely change it. And uh, the fact that he wasn't worried about having, you know, uh, the Kubrick family there. Says but there's something. even a line that the character um, says when they walk into that room with the dancing dead people, they say this is different from The Shining. Like, 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 it, right. it almost like tells the audience, listen, we're not trying to recreate or do what Kubrick did. We're just, you know, it's it's our own take on it and this is what, how we're going to play with this world, you know? Well, it's be, yeah, beyond that, thematically, what he's saying is, what Artemis is saying to him is, stop obsessing over your fanboy right. details and... <laughs> because guess what this isn't the shining like the shining doesn't have zombies in it and it's and it's not stephen king's version either it's it's not about that and that's kind of one of the most important thematic uh moments i, I wanted to ask because uh we've discussed this in the show jake uh, about stephen yes. king not liking the shining was, was that on record did he actually say yeah that? I, I mean he, he talked yeah, about he it, I mean, it. And zach can correct me if i'm wrong but he and he's he sort of like backtracked a little bit because i think he he said it a couple of times and then people tended to like zone in on that particular point i mm. think it's not that he thinks it's a bad movie he thinks it's a bad adaptation and as someone that, that has read the book a couple of times i don't disagree with him on that you can think it's a great movie and still think i mean I, I think, and, you know, by no means did I know Kubrick, but I think he Kubrick used the book more as a blueprint than a guideline, um, you know, for, for yeah. how he was going to adapt it. 
Well, it's an interesting thing because I sat there with Ernie, the author of the book, as we were changing his book. Uh, talk, and it was Ernie who brought up, I mean, he's the one who, he's like an expert on Stephen King. And he was, he's filled with details about how Stephen King feels about The Shining. So while we were sitting there, he kept saying, this is so weird that I'm the author of this book, talking about the author of a book, <laughs> hating the adaptation of his movie for changing it. But I do think the difference is that Kubrick didn't care at all what it wasn't about what was in Stephen King's book. It was just, I'm going to take this setting and make the movie I want to make, as opposed to Ready Player One, where we're keeping the heart of Ernie's story. We're just changing the details, you know. But Kubrick absolutely, uh, he didn't care. You know, he wasn't going to do half the stuff that was in the book, no matter what. And he made up a whole bunch of stuff, too. Mm. I mean, I think his big, Stephen King's big objection is that Jack Nicholson is, plays an unsympathetic character from the very beginning mm -hmm. of the movie, which, you know... That's what you get with Stanley Kubrick. Mm, yeah. Jake, you uh, had a Blade Runner point? Yeah, Blade, before we get to Sean's next question, which is a fantastic question, I'd be remiss if I did not point out um, that today, April 10th, 2017, is the birth date of, the, of Leon, the first replicant in Blade Runner. Whenever they're interviewing Leon, who is that? I don't know if, he, I don't know if you can see this picture. That guy. They, uh, you don't have to tell yeah. me. Yeah. So they, 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 they cut to a screen, oh, with, all, the to a screen with all the facts yeah. about him, and he was actually <laughs> born... Today, so I'd, I'd be remiss if I if, if I was having this conversation and we were talking about Blade Runner, I didn't bring that up. So there you go, fun fact of the day. Well, I'm 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 pouring one out for Leon. I love. <laughs> All Leon. right, Zach, you brought this up earlier um, about the third version of Halliday, and uh, I want you to try to elaborate on that because it's a big yeah. unopened, uh, unanswered question at the end of the movie, and obviously. We get a lot of times where people who have collaborated on the film don't want to answer. They want to leave it up to the audience to decide. But what can you tell us about what Halliday is saying in the end of the film? Well, I, I do want to leave it up to the audience. And I think that's important. I also think it's important to Ernie that, you know, I'm not going to I'm not going to give you my personal mm -hmm. theory. But if you just think about it, how, you know, Halliday appears in the movie in the flashbacks, you know, in the in the Halliday journals, which is obviously a departure mm -hmm. from the book. You know, there, that doesn't exist in the book. And that was a way to get him actually on screen. But when he turns back into Halliday in the Oasis, who is that, right? I mean, that's not, you know, that's not Halliday because Halliday is dead. That's not, you know, there's no uh, twist coming that Halliday's actually alive. I mean, he is dead. And there's no, and it's not Anorak because he's changed back into Halliday. So the question is, what is that, you know, who right. is that person who he's talking mm -hmm. to? And... And, you know, it obviously raises some good questions about, like, is that, you know, what defines uh, consciousness and what defines who's real and who isn't real. But I think that, uh, you know, even the way he has, you know, his own younger self with him in the room should give you a clue that that Halliday is not, has kind of taken on his own persona. Hmm. Um, but I do think that that's something that Ernie will deal with in the okay. sequel. Uh, cool. In the book, so. Jake said something about That's about writing scenes for rights. Yeah, you know, you had mentioned that that a book could be written about uh, the the production of the Shining scene, and I, I'd be curious to read a book about how everyone went about acquiring all the rights that need to needed to be acquired uh, to pull off a movie mm -hmm. like this. So I'm sort of curious. Whenever you are crafting the screenplay, how do you put in specific references before you know that you're going to be able to acquire the rights to them? Well. You know, first, when I wrote the first draft, I just put in whatever I felt like and whatever was appropriate to the book and whatever, you know, I threw in a couple of 
you know, things that I just thought were funny and just figured we'll figure it out later. I mean, obviously leaned more towards Warner Brothers properties where I could because I mean, Blade Runner was an easy one. I didn't realize we wouldn't get the rights to it, but uh, that was one I figured would be easy. Uh, same with Road Warrior and a couple of other ones that they own. But for the most part, what happened was there was a whole team of people. There was a guy, you know, one of our producers and someone at Warner Brothers and somebody, uh, you know, Deirdre Bax, who was in our office with us. And they would put posters of cleared characters hmm. up on the wall right outside my office. You know, we were all in the production office together. So if I, you know, I'd walk down and say, okay, I need like, I need a guy who's a pretty good fighter who could be on Planet hmm. Doom. Who do we have? And there'd be like, okay, here they are. Or, you know, uh, often I would call up Ernie and say, damn, we lost the rights to this, you know, robot. Uh, give me 12 good robots and we'll see what we can clear. So, you know, there's a lot of that. And then same with the weapons. You know, I would throw in the weapons I liked and hope we could clear them. Um, but those people worked. I mean, I made a joke in the Empire. There was an article about an Empire. I said she should win an Oscar for appearances. <laughs> um, it really was an incredible, you know. Hey, what you didn't get the rights to that you wanted oh, yeah. to? Um, well, I think only Blade Runner. I mean, I would have liked to have had Deckard's spinner and his, and his gun, um, would have been fun, but I, you know, it's, the movie does not lack for, uh, references. Um, I, you know, it's funny. We never got all that hung up on which ones we got and which ones we didn't, because we felt like that was kind of the, mis like a lot of fans or hate uh, people who are not fans were thinking, oh, this movie's just going to be like a series of references. And that was never no. our intention. I mean, it's just, it makes no sense. I mean, it's just the window dressing. It's, it's kind of like, you know, if you made a movie about Comic-Con, you wouldn't sit there and say, well, that's not Batman. That's just a guy dressed right. as Batman. Oh, well, that's a great way to put it. It's not the Iron Giant. That's a really good way to put it. Well, that was the beauty of the movie was that the references never overpowered the storytelling and the, and the themes and the, and, and, and the arc of everybody. That They were just kind of sprinkles on top of the ice cream that was whatever this movie was. And But real quick, before we, before we move on, I know we have to get the street blend. I know we're kind of running low on time. I do want to ask, when I spoke to you at the junket with you and Ernie, we talked about... Uh, the Spielberg references, and obviously in the book, there's references to Steven Spielberg's movies and things like that. And you had uh, mentioned in the, in the interview that when you initially sent your script to Spielberg, that you did have some references in there. I was curious what those were. Uh, and now that the final product is out there, uh, I know that I believe there's an ET thing in there somewhere. That, 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 I'm trying to figure out all the Spielberg ones that actually made it in. But what were in your original script? Well, I had this whole thing when they're looking at the spaceships in H's garage that uh, they get in this whole discussion about the mothership from Close Encounters mm. and how much, you know, it's impossible to get. Like, the rights are impossible. <laughs> and they get in this discussion about it's tough to find. And then uh, H Wade says, tough to park, you know, and which I just thought was a funny idea. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, but, and, and there's a lot like that. There's a lot of stuff about uh, things from Steven's movies. But, uh, yeah, we cut them out. I mean, I, I think for good reason. I just think it would have... I think you would have sat there in the theater saying, that's a Spielberg reference, right? Steven Spielberg directed this movie. Mm -hmm. It takes you out of it, you know? Um, well, there's a giant T-Rex. And everything that's in there was snuck in there. <laughs> there is a Jurassic well, the Park T-Rex, <laughs> yeah. Here's the thing. It's funny everyone says it's the Jurassic Park T-Rex. It is just a T-Rex. I mean, it, it's a T-Rex. Yeah. And I think that's why he was okay with it. It wasn't like, it didn't say Jurassic Park on it. It right. didn't say, you know... Um, but I think even that took some convincing. Um, we actually had a Velociraptor 
at one point, Chucky took the place of the Velociraptor. Oh, originally, he wow. catches them. But, but, I mean, Chucky worked better. Yes. But originally, he just throws a Velociraptor out the window. That hilarious. is awesome i would still love to see yeah. that scene but, i really but, I, if that were to happen i'd want the, the nail like the nail tap what's well, like was like two taps when, like every time a velociraptor's <laughs> nail taps the floor it was just like tap tap yeah it, it was a little too chaotic for that that was part it was also hard to fit him out the window you know like, <laughs> to throw him out the window. By the way, there is a there's a gift that kevin shares yes i'm gonna get to there's a gift that kevin shares in our text chain all the time and it's it's arnold's thumb going into the lava it's the greatest lava? moment Ever. What is it? It's molten? steel. It's like molten no, steel. It's molten steel. Molten steel. That, Kevin, that's talk the about one. That well, first of all, the ending of Terminator Two, I think, is the first time I ever cried in a film. I remember. To me, it's, just, it, it's a perfect movie. I think Terminator Two is. It's the movie that made me fall in love with cinema. Uh, I was eight years old when I saw it. it changed my life. It was the movie that made me want to get into some type of business in regards to filmmaking. Um, yeah, the way you wrote that in was so perfect, and I was wondering. Uh, it was, it was your idea, right? The thumbs up was your idea. Um, yeah. Talk about, you know, was that something you had to convince them on? Because clearly, you know, fans of Terminator 2 would get that. Um, but the beauty of the movie, in my opinion, is that even if you don't see Terminator 2, that, that moment still means something because it's still a thumbs up from the Iron Giant. That's why all the right. references work. Well, look, once, you know, a lot of the, you know, Adam Stockhouse and the production designer and all the people from who were creating the Oasis, you know, they were the ones who came up with I don't think I wrote that there was a lava moat around the castle. <laughs> you know, that was something that they came up with in the design. Cool. And once I saw it, and once we kind of beat out the sequence and realized, oh, the Iron Giant's going to fall, you know, all that came out of storyboarding and everything else. But once I realized, okay, he's going to fall in, or she's going to fall into the lava, of course, of course. Ugh. I mean, the classic shot had <laughs> to be there. And I love that movie too. I mean, I'm sure someone else would have had that idea, but the second I saw the boards, is like, we got to have the thumbs up because it makes total sense. I mean, why wouldn't you do that? Particularly if you're a fan of movies, you know, that's, that's what I would do if I was melting in lava. Kevin, Kevin, Sean, how many, how many people in, in your theater when that happened, how many like Dude. people just raised their thumbs up into oh, the air, whatever. I, oh, I, I actually I let out a yeah. gasp. I was actually, I, I think I actually shrieked. <laughs> I was so excited. Yeah. When I, saw I, I think my fiance time. questioned why she's marrying me whenever I held <laughs> She just looked at me and went, Jesus Christ. <laughs> all, all, you know, all of the, the I, only thing I we do, needed was someone saying, "I know now why you cry." I mean, I, I would have I just had a heart attack in the theater. I would have died. Yeah. Well, you know, we did try to limit how much people referenced actual line. I mean, because yeah. it could have gotten out of control. Totally. Um, but to me, that's a perfect example of it's a reference that fits into the moment perfectly. You don't need to get it. If you do, it's it's better, but you still get that it's each saying go win, you know? So, Oh, I'll fully admit there's, there's probably 50 references in the film that I just didn't get. And Oh, I, I don't get all of them. <laughs> yeah. I don't, yeah. I'm not kidding. There's background characters. I don't know who they are. I was reading stories that the VFX team was adding stuff in behind Spielberg's back. And then Spielberg, like, I, I remember I read somewhere and correct me if I'm wrong, that the Schindler's list book, Schindler's arc was actually on the shelf of one of the, of one of, uh, one of uh, uh, Parzival or um, Wade's uh, bookshelf, and then Spielberg took it out. I read that in an interview. I was like, uh, you know, that's crazy. I guess that's possible. Uh, I didn't, you know, look, Ernie snuck it. I didn't know until the first screening that there was a Last Action Hero reference. Yes. Oh, I mean, I had actually said, yeah. Uh, yeah, I had said, oh, don't do that early on. Someone asked me, I said, no, please. And when I saw the first cut, I couldn't believe it there, you know, because 
I had seen only those shots individually, and so I, I was sitting next to Ernie. I was like, first I was angry, and I was like, that was pretty awesome of you. So oh, I, really <laughs> it was I didn't see it at homage. South by Southwest, and I didn't see it. I wasn't able to do the junket. And I so the, one of the, the perils of this job is that you get spoiled on everything because we have to cover everything leading up to the release. And the only thing I didn't know is what movie that they went into. And for the longest time, I tried to wait and tried to wait, and tried to avoid it as best I could. And right before I left, I went to the premiere in L.A. Right before I left for it, um, I had to look at stories that our guys had gotten at the junket and, and they asked ahead. And one of our guys talked to you and you had referenced The Last Action Hero of how that inspired the, the ability to step into the thing. And I saw his headline and I saw Last Action Hero and I said, son of a bitch, I read it. And that, so I sat there watching the movie, waiting for them to go into Last Action Hero. How trippy would that oh have been? Oh, my God. <laughs> that's, like, that's like some Deadpool breaking 16 yeah. walls thing. Imagine them diving yeah. into the theater and then diving That's into crossing the, the street. Or, or Inception. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, like going into yeah, it and then going Inception. Inception. Uh, yeah. We could talk to Zach for another hour, obviously, but we have a game that we have to play. Zach, thank you so much for opening up so much about Ready Player One. And the movie um, is a masterpiece. Yeah. It really, yeah. really is. We, all we ever do is I'm, talk about it. I mean, we, we, we do got to say how much we love this movie. I mean, oh, we yeah. really, really do. It's like, so it's much, much appreciated. Thank you. Oh. I'm, I'm very. It's been such a nice experience, you know, to see people's reactions to it. So we had we had a, a uh, no trouble coming up with questions, which is always a good sign. Sometimes we interview <laughs> yeah. talent for movies we're not a fan of, and we sort yeah. of lead off with so. Tell us about your movie. And that's, uh, and that's never a good sign. Sometimes I've written some of those movies. Like, oh, what's your favorite scene? It's like, uh, none of them. Oh, uh, the ones that were in my original script. Before we run out, I, I do want to ask you one quick Avengers question. Can I ask you a quick Avengers question? Sure. Please. There's a moment in Avengers, and I'm not sure if you wrote it or if it's something I added later, where um, Loki taps Tony Stark with what eventually becomes one of the stones, the Mind Stone, and it doesn't affect him. Is there a reason why? No idea. That was definitely not in my script. And I never... The truth is, I kept asking, like, what's going on? They never seem to get any of these... You know, Thanos is a total failure. Like, he lives <laughs> on an asteroid. There's no bathroom. You know, he just sits in his chair all day with, uh, with Emperor Palpatine and never gets a stone. So, so that was something that... Uh, I don't even think I had Thanos. There's, it was clear that Thanos was pulling the strings from beyond, mm -hmm. but he wasn't revealed the way he was in the final version of the movie. Gotcha. It was actually Loki pulling the strings was the on-screen character, and he doesn't enter till later. Oh, no. I mean, you know, Joss rewrote a lot of the script. Sure. So. I, we, we do got to say one of the coolest shots ever is that continuous shot from each character at the end when it just travels to each one. Mm -hmm. That shot blows my mind. Oh, that's Yeah, that that was my idea. Was it? Uh, <laughs> take it. Take it. All right. Uh, we normally play this game where we take someone who we love and we put hashtag their name and blend afterwards. And then we debate furiously about what their best film is. And after doing a few directors, we did Coen Brothers, uh, Christopher Nolan, Spielberg, Scorsese. Uh, we shifted over to actors. We did Tom Hanks, and so to answer to Tom Hanks, we are doing Meryl Streep. And what is, what uh, is Zach's Tom Hanks pick? We have to get his Tom Hanks pick. Okay, if he knows it. Okay, it's his well, best performance, um, not his best movie. His best performance. God, what is the one that he did with his? Uh, this isn't really his best performance, but I love. It's a very underrated movie where he plays like he joins the Peace Corps. Volunteers. Volunteers. Oh, oh, nice. Volunteers. Yeah. It's a much maligned movie, but I think it's really funny. Um, 
you know, it's a good one. It's so <laughs> it's so hard to pick. Uh, I thought he was great in um, what's it called? The you know the Sam Mendes movie. Road to Perdition. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Road to Perdition. It's great. We one. love Road to um, Perdition. Jake's favorite movie. Yeah. Um, I don't know. There's a lot. That's a tough one. But I'll I'll take volunteers just to be fair enough. Perverse. All right. So uh, our producer tells us what order we're supposed to go in because it's supposed to fill out a narrative of some sort. And we were told that Jake is supposed to go first. Um, and his pick will make sense once uh, once he tells us what it is. See, so. this always blows my because because Gabe paints a picture that we're not able to see until the very end, and he paints it by picking what order we. Go I like in. We that never though. Know. I yeah. mean, oh, I, no, it's fun. At least he's contributing yeah. something to the show, for God's sakes. I'm embarrassed oh. by my pick, by the way. I'm pissed. You keep saying that, which makes me think I know what it is. Because, um, uh, all right, we're not guessing each other's picks. Yeah, we're not going to guess. Sometimes we do. There's too much debate coming. Um, I, much to our producer Gabe's uh, annoyance, I changed mine a couple of times, which is a testament to um, Meryl Streep's filmography. But I'm going to go with my original pick, which was Kramer versus Kramer. Um, The reason I picked that is because, in my eyes, that is a character that should not be as sympathetic as she is. I mean, we're talking about a woman that ups and, I mean, granted, her husband is a workaholic, but she ups and decides to leave her family and her son. She leaves yep. her husband and her son and just goes away. And time passes, and she and she allows for the son and the father to to form this this relationship and get over the awkwardness of not having the mother there. And they form this bond, and then she has the audacity to come back and expect to have to get the child back automatically. That's not a character who should be as sympathetic as she is. And I think under any other actress, it would have just been a straight up. 2D villain and there are so many layers that Meryl Streep brings to that character that makes me sympathize with her I mean if you were to pitch me that story in a meeting I would go so the mother's the villain and the father's the hero right mm-hmm. but I mean both I mean if you remember the trial but the trial becomes a character assassination on both parts and Meryl Streep does things with that character that that I I don't think there are you know I could maybe count on one hand the number of actresses that could have could have done that uh, mm-hmm. that, that that character should not work the way it does, and I'd argue that the reason it does is because of Meryl Streep. So that's why I'm picking uh, her character in Kramer versus Kramer as uh, her best performance. Not wrong. Only about five minutes of screen time, but I get what yeah. you're saying. No, that's yeah. fine. That's fine. That's a fair enough choice. I mean, five minutes um, of screen time, one of our best actors. Awesome. <laughs> Zach, I'm told you go next. Well, I mean, the, the funny thing about this is that it is a Sophie's choice. Hmm. Uh, this question of what it is, is Meryl's. I mean, Absolutely. I, I, I was waiting for one of you guys to say that, but um, just, you know, the fact that you have to try to choose between all these incredible performances, I, I agree with you entirely about Kramer versus Kramer. Um, I think she's amazing in Silkwood. I think she's amazing. I mean, she's amazing in so many movies. I think she's great in The Post. You know, I think she always is interesting, but I have to say, Sophie's Choice. I mean, Sophie's Choice is... Uh, you know, it's such a difficult role. It's such a complex role. Uh, you know, her accent is flawless. You know, it's just she's looks different than she does in any other movie. I, you know, again, it's splitting hairs, but I think Sophie's Choice is probably, uh, I, I think, is probably her most towering performance. We were also having a conversation before the podcast started about how you can tell when people haven't actually seen Sophie's Choice. <laughs> Because yeah. they really just boil it down to the the decision she had to make between her two children, and it's a much more yeah. broad yeah. movie than yeah. that. It's like, yeah. oh yeah, no, it's not. It's not even. It's mostly set in you know uh, far after the war. Mm-hmm. But 
All right, I'm going next, and uh, oh, I'm going I'm... last because my pick sucks, right? You're <laughs> last. last. I, I think last. I know what your pick is. Uh, if your pick is what I think it is, and it doesn't because your suck. pick sucks, <laughs> yeah. it's just not as good as the rest of ours. You're, you're <laughs> last because we like you least of all. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I um was I boiled it down to two, and I really they're flip a coin. Um, and I I was going to go with doubt because she's just devastatingly good in that movie. And if you can go toe to toe with Philip Seymour Hoffman, like that movie is just the two of the greatest actors of all time going at each other. And they're both incredible. But I ultimately went away from it because I went to Bridges of Madison County for this reason. I think no one questions her range. I think she can play anything. And I think we've seen her play anything in, in so many movies, but in that film, she plays all of the notes in one character. She has to start as this woman who's been displaced to the Midwest and she's shy and pigeonholed and reserved and unsure of herself. She has to play this person who is, she rekindles her uh, fascination with life because she falls in love and becomes this giddy teen almost. Uh, She's smitten with Clint Eastwood's character. She has to come back around to be the solemn and committed wife uh, and unhappy with it. And the scene, I watched it again today, the scene where she's sitting in the car and grabs the door handle and contemplates going, running to Clint Eastwood. Like it's, it's, she plays every note over the course of this journey, all in one movie. And she sells every aspect of it. So I thought picking a movie where she's able to show everything that she's able to do. Um, and again, be this, you know, glamorous a-list movie star that looks as convincing as a you know a midwesterner dowdy midwesterner um and then hit all of those emotional notes just she blows my mind in in bridges madison county so so i went with it um and i i'm i'm not confident in my pick but that's the one that i love today so which leaves us with kevin oh god all right so first of all (laughs) let me say a couple things one, I'm very, I'm embarrassed because I, uh, uh, this was a hard one for me because I actually haven't seen all of her filmography. Uh, I'm just going to be completely honest. Uh, there, there was never a time in my life where I just said, you know what, I'm going to watch Sophie's Choice today. So I've not seen Sophie's Choice. Uh, and I'm embarrassed by that, but I have not seen it. So um, I actually tried to get myself out of this conversation because I don't feel like I have enough knowledge of her filmography to it's pick hard. her best one. Uh, I mean, I've seen, obviously, Bridges of Madison County. I've seen the post uh, films that an Iron Lady, which I don't think she should have won for. Um, but I, I think, I don't know. It's I was I was in between two films, and and Deer Hunter was 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 where I came up initially. Uh, I think Deer Hunter, the performance is brilliant, but I ultimately went with one that I think is going to make me sound like an idiot. But I went with Devil Wears Prada. That's not a bad choice. That's not a bad choice. She got an Oscar that's nomination for that. But, yeah. but he. But here's yeah. why. I, listen, and, and I understand. Hey, don't hate yourself. It's, just, it's not <laughs> it's a bad a, choice. But it's, but it's outside Mama of Mama Mia would have been a bad choice. <laughs> yeah, <that laughs> yeah or the River Wild. Yeah, yeah. You could have said the River right Wild. Right into the wood. Um, uh, but I think that I went Devil Wears Product for two reasons. One, uh, at that point in Meryl Streep's career, she's arguably one of the, the biggest actresses on the planet, right? I mean, she has tons of Oscar nominations. She's super famous. And I think... To me, as actors get more and more famous, it's harder for them to disappear into roles. Um, and I think that's why I always mm-hmm. look at people like Brad Pitt and Tom Cruise, who are so freaking famous. But then when you watch Brad Pitt and Assassination of Jesse James, he disappears. Tom Cruise disappears completely when you watch Born on the Fourth of July and go back and watch those movies. I think Meryl Streep disappears in this role. I think it's a completely 
interesting performance because she plays all realms of emotions. Uh, you mean to me like, uh, and I, I always look at like the w the way they go emotionally, dramatically, comedically, uh, and I think to me she stretched her muscles the furthest here in regards to what she could do as an actress. I mean, we, we've seen her go extremely dramatic. We've seen her go in different realms. Um, like, that's why I always say DiCaprio's best performance is Wolf of Wall Street, because he stretched himself physically, comedically, dramatically. Um, I just think this was the juiciest role that she's ever taken on, too. It just had so much... There's so much to work with, and she just played it perfectly. She never overdid it. She let the, the role itself be subtle when it was subtle, let it be extreme when it was extreme. Um, so to me, out of the films I've seen in her career so far, that to me is the best performance. Because it just, cause it, I don't know, to me it let her flex muscles that maybe she well, hadn't done prior. For people who played along at Street Blend, Kevin, they actually went with uh, Devil Wears Prada as a really? second choice. As a second oh, choice, as a second okay. choice. The tie, there was a yeah, tie certainly not for her best. A tie for her best between Kramer versus Kramer and The Deer Hunter. Those are the two that tie. Oh, wow. I'm surprised we didn't have someone pick Deer Hunter. Deer Hunter was my initial thought. Like, we initially went to the thought, but then I was talking to my wife. We were talking about Devil Wars Prada, and we were just kind of going through it. I'm like, you know, I think, you know, that that movie, to me, it just, it just it's, it's a really, really interesting range she picks. and It's she her most fun down. performance to watch. I love that I mean, like, it, it is, but it's weird that those two choices are two of her smallest roles. I mean, she's great in Manhattan yeah. also, mm -hmm. but... I just feel like it's weird that, you know, those would be, even though I don't disagree with them. The hard part about Meryl Streep is she's always good. Right. <laughs> so there's really not that, you really have to, it's kind of like with Steven Spielberg, you have to really look to pick a bad movie. It's too hard to pick his best movie. You, it's more like an argument, you know, what, what are Steven's only bad movies, you know? And that's something you can't get two people to agree Sean, on. So I, I, Sean, don't hate me, but I have to ask Zach this question because I'm genuinely curious what he thinks, if you don't mind. Go ahead. Sure. Zach, we, we, we did Christopher Nolan blend on the show um, uh, uh -huh. a few, about a month, couple months ago. I, I was obsessed with Dunkirk, I think, but I, I ultimately went with Interstellar because I know, and I know it's a very divisive film. Um, and then Jake went with Dark Knight and then Sean went with The Prestige. I'm curious mm -hmm. where you fall in Nolan. Do, do you even like Interstellar and where, and what is your favorite of his movies, best of his movies? Um, I actually like a lot of Interstellar. I mean, I, there's parts of it that really drove me a little batty, but there's parts of it that I think are yeah. brilliant. Um, and I thought it was a fascinating movie. Uh, it's weird. I think I like Dunkirk. Yes! More than any of his I movies. love Dunkirk. Um, <laughs> oh, and, no. And I, I saw it nine times. I don't know what you've done. No, why? <laughs> Here's the thing. It's so much more... I, I just think it's such a taut yep. movie. It, you know, there's something about the length of it. I, I also like Batman Begins yes. a lot, actually. That's my favorite. That I'm not as big a fan of the other Batman movies as I am of Batman Begins. Begins is a better movie than Dark Knight. It is a better movie than Dark Knight. It, it is. has the perfect yeah, ending. I, 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 yeah, I'm, look, I don't know. I don't want to get in trouble, but <laughs> I'm not a huge fan of the other Dark Knight movies. Like, I don't, you know, I know they're well-made, but I don't remember that much of it. I remember moments, but I don't really remember, you know, it's not like, uh, even Inception, I remember so much more yeah. of what's going on in it. But I did think Interstellar might be his most ambitious movie and and features some of the best sequences he's done. But I feel like Dunkirk was the movie, actually, I should say this, I think Memento might be his actually, I mean, I think Memento is almost a perfect mm. But there's a, there's a running theme with what Zach said about Dunkirk, though, about going back to the beginning of the podcast about Close Encounters and using sound and visuals to tell a story. I mean, right. Dunkirk, 
was Zimmer's score was a character. It was the it was a leading character that emotionally took us through the scenes, and then just the just the different cinematography and shooting on you know whatever he did with sixty five millimeter film. But I mean, yeah, I, I'm with you. I think Dunkirk was is might be his masterpiece. But I don't know. I'm, I'm Interstellar. I don't know. It's hard. It's really hard. Are you ready for next week's homework? Oh yeah, what it, yeah. I don't, I don't know what it is. What what, what you, you've gotten to the point where you don't tell us anymore. We're going back to directors. Uh, inspired by Isle of Dogs, we're doing Wes Anderson. Oh. We're doing hashtag Westblend, and it will uh, <laughs> lead us into a Wes Anderson conversation. Zach, you're welcome to come back if you'd like to, or give us your Wes Anderson. <laughs> well, give us your favorite Wes Anderson right now. Um, well, you know, I actually, I, I've always loved Bottle yes. Rocket. Uh, you know, I saw it before it even came out. Um, actually, at one point, a producer teamed me and Wes up to write a script together which was the most hilarious mismatch. Oh, okay. I mean, I, I love Wes's writing, but he'd only done, uh, he, he was just working on Rushmore at the time. And we just, he was like, I don't ever outline. And I said, oh, I always outline. It lasted about a week. But, um, what was the story? But, uh, what, what I, I think, what was the story? It, it, it was like something about bounty hunters, like this true life story about bounty hunters. It never, we never did it because we couldn't get anywhere. But, um, but I loved Rushmore. I love, but I, Bottle Rocket, I have such, I, I think that's an incredible movie that holds up. And I liked uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox, I think is one of the best. I, and I, I do love Grand Budapest too, but I think Fantastic Mr. Fox might be his best and movie. And that's um, Meryl Streep's I, I think too. it's incredible. Yeah, it's more Meryl. Yep. Thank you for And that is a great Meryl Streep performance. I agree. Performance Thank you too. for staying on topic, Zach. I appreciate that very much. Yeah, no all problem. right, we have to wrap. Uh, it's all the time that we have. Thank you very much, everybody, for tuning in to the live Facebook feed. You can find us online at, um, of course, our guest. We will lead off with at Zach Penn. That is Z-A-K-P-E-N-N. Jake, where are you at? At Jake's Takes. Kevin? Uh, I'm also at Zach Penn, Z A K P N P E N N. Just send me, send his tweets to to him. <laughs> and I am uh, at Sean underscore O'Connell. Obviously, if you are listening on iTunes, please drop us a review and a um, a star rating. All of that really helps us. Uh, tune in next week for our discussion. We're going to be getting into. What are we talking about next week? I think Rampage. A Quiet Place. A, a Quiet Place. Oh, we're going to fight about A Quiet Place because uh, one of us on here disagrees with two of the others so zach thank you it. so much for joining us we really appreciate yeah, you coming thank on you and talking very much pleasure so this much. was great uh, oh it was such a blast thank you and we'll talk to you guys next week thanks for tuning in appreciate it this is the story of the one as a maintenance engineer he hears things differently to the untrained ear everything on his shop floor might sound fine but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping so he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.